So Moses was a relatively young 80-year-old when he had his life-changing uh, encounter with God at the burning bush. Now, I say he was relatively young 80-year-old because he lived to be 120. And so at 80 years old, he was just past middle age, and he had a lot of good life left in him. Well, Moses was out and about, and he saw this burning bush, and he was drawn to it. He was curious because he saw the bush on fire, but it wasn't being consumed. And so, of course, naturally, he started to get closer to it with some caution in his heart, but his trusted staff in his hand. His staff had been with him for a number of years. It was his, it was his favorite staff, and uh, it, it had been through a lot of miles with him. He used it as a walking stick. He used it to care for the sheep. As a shepherd, this was handy. He used it, uh, he could use it to defend himself as protection from time to time to protect the sheep. Uh, he could even use it as a social distancing stick if he needed to for, okay, not, not really at that time, but about six feet. But it was just a piece of wood up to that point. Only now at this moment, God was going to change things and this staff was now going to become God's staff. It was going to be a conveyance, a, a conveyance of God's wonder and his miracles. God speaks to Moses out of the burning bush and tells him that he has been chosen. Moses has been chosen to go to Egypt to free God's people. The Israelites that are in slavery in Egypt, he wants Moses to go to free them. And Moses balks at the idea. He says, no way, I can't, I can't do this. It doesn't, work, it doesn't make sense. I'm going to see that. I'm going to go there. They're not going to accept me as God's messenger. They're going to laugh or, or even worse. He says, I can't do that. And God says, well, tell you what. Can you do this? Throw your staff down. I think they had to make Moses smile because Moses thinks, yeah, I can do that. Go to Egypt, flee the slaves, probably not. Throw my staff down. I can do that. And down it goes. And at that moment, the Bible says that God turned Moses' staff into a snake into a snake, and Moses, demonstrating his immediate courage, he sees the snap become a snake, and he runs away. <laughs> oh, Moses, you see, God has given him the very first of three miracles that he's going to use to prove to Pharaoh that Moses is being sent by God, and instead of being excited about it, <laughs> Moses just bails out. He takes off. He is out of here. Snake. I don't know if he had a snake phobia or just what. Well, to his credit, God calls him back, and Moses does come back into the area anyway. And then God says, in a sense, even testing his faith a little bit here, he says, go back and pick up the snake and pick it up by the tail. Now, anybody knows anything about handling snakes, that is not where you want to pick up a snake, right? If you, if you value your life and, and you don't want to get chomped. But again, to his credit and for his faith, Moses approaches the snake, and, and he actually picks it up by the tail, and fortunately for him, it turns back. God turns it back into a staff. And Moses breathes a sigh of relief. He says, my good and trusted staff, down to every knot and every last splinter. God has made a big statement here. You see, this is no longer just a piece of wood. It's no longer Moses' staff. It's God's staff. And things are going to be different now. And God then has Moses and his brother Aaron use this staff multiple times in the time to come to be a way to prove God's presence and God's power and God's miracle working. So Moses and Aaron, they do go to Egypt and they travel there and they confront Pharaoh and say, let God's people go. And Pharaoh laughs at him. And at some point very early on, it's in his first encounter with Pharaoh, it's actually Aaron who takes the staff and throws it down on the ground to become a snake. You see, 
the Egyptian magicians had, had tried to duplicate this miracle and they had produced some snakes. So Aaron throws the staff on the ground again and it becomes a snake who promptly consumes and eats up, swallows whole all of the magician's snakes at that point. Well, this, the, the staff is gathered up. And over the days and the weeks to come, as Moses continues to say to Pharaoh, please let God's people go, he says no, and so plagues come upon the Egyptians. If you're familiar with the story, there are a series of 10 plagues. Five of them are initiated with the staff, the striking of the river and the various things that are happening. God is using the staff as a showpiece, as a symbol for what God is doing in might and in power. And finally, Pharaoh says, I've had enough. The 10th plague was so traumatic. He says, get out. In fact, just, just leave, you know, and go ahead and take some treasure with you. With you. And the millions of Hebrew people leave Egypt. And they start heading out into the wilderness. And fairly quickly, though, Pharaoh starts to think, I just gave up my slaves, millions of slaves, free labor. And he changes his mind and he starts pursuing. Moses is out ahead leading this huge troop of, of Hebrews, the Israelites, out into the wilderness. And, and here comes Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's coming with his chariots, his big army, and they are intimidating. Now, the nation of Israel the Hebrews are up against the Red Sea on one side, and they see the dust that must have been recognizing and the sound that's coming from these huge army of chariots and everything coming, and, they, and, they, and the nation starts to panic. The Hebrews start to panic. We're stuck against the sea. Here comes the Egyptians. What's going to happen? Only they turn to see Egypt. They, excuse me. They turn to see Moses, and Moses is not panicking. God has given him some direction. He says, Moses, come to the Red Sea. Lift your arms. Lift your staff above the sea, and he does so. And what happens? The Red Sea it parts. It becomes dry land right through the middle of it. And all of a sudden, Israel has a way out. The Hebrews have a way out. And so they make their way across the dry land, across the Red Sea, to the other side, able to flee from the Egyptians. Yea, God. Only the Egyptians get the same idea. They come to the Red Sea, and they see the sea parted. They see the dry ground. And they said, if it worked for them, it's working for us. We're going. And so out into the sea they go. Except on the other side, once the Hebrews are safely through, God slows up the Egyptian army. And then he says, Moses, raise your hand again. I'm going to save you. I'm going to deliver you. Victory. And go Moses raises his hand again, and God causes the waters of the Red Sea to come together, drowning and obliterating Pharaoh's entire army of chariots. And the people rejoice and celebrate. Yay, God, you got us out of slavery. You saved us from the army. God, you are our God. You are our deliverer. The people continue to walk then for some days and days and days. They keep walking and they keep walking and they keep walking and they get hot and they get tired and they get dusty and they get thirsty. And at some point they are so desperate for water that they start, they start to complain and they start to worry and they start, they start saying to Moses, God is not even with us anymore. What are we doing out here? And, and, God, and Moses turns to God and says, help, Lord. And God says, okay. And he instructs Moses to grab the elders, the leadership of the Hebrew nation, to come with him, to come over to this large rock at Rephidim, is where they are at at this point, a dusty, dry place. And to take the staff, Moses' staff, God's staff, to take the staff and to strike the rock. And out of the rock comes water, because the nation of Israel, they are so thirsty. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about rocking out of water, but I could see you strike a rock and out comes some water, and out comes this little stream. Oh, that's cute. A little stream ain't gonna make, isn't going to help a couple million people, is it? I can't imagine the size of this river that God produces, some underground source that just comes out to satisfy not just the immediate thirst, but, but then to be able to store up water for the people. 
God has worked a miracle. He's called the leadership of Israel right there to see God's staff. Look what God can and will do every time. Victory. And out comes the water. Did you see it, elders? Did you hear? Did you understand? So you can take that back to the people. That problem has been solved. And yet as we move into Exodus chapter 17, a new problem arises because although the water has taken place, a problem comes in the, in the way of, of, a, of a group of people called the Amalekites. The Amalekites were actually descendants of Esau. Now, Esau is a grandson of Abraham, so they're very closely related to the Israelites, the Hebrews, really coming from the same seed of Abraham just when, you know, when, you, when, you, when it divides up you know, earlier than that. But instead of being friends, they're enemies. And the Amaleks, the Amalekites, are in the area, and they see this huge nation of Israel coming through, and they're like, we don't want them around here. You know, these are our enemies. Get them out of here. I don't want them eating our food. I don't want them coming into our area. I'm not giving up any of my land. And they start to attack them. What they do is they go to the very back of the procession of the Israelites. And, and it says in another place in the Bible in Deuteronomy that, that, uh, that they would come and just attack at the rear. They'd run these little raids, and they'd pick off the weak and the tired, you know, the people that are kind of trailing behind, picture hundreds of thousands of and millions of people in the back or the tired in the back or the uh, kind of and, and they would just come and they'd run these raids and the Amalekites get so much confidence from this that they go you know what this is piece of cake easy pickings here let's take them on let's see they came from Egypt after hundreds of years of slavery they don't know how to fight they don't have any weapons it's a bunch of men and women and kids and livestock we got this in the bag and so the Amalekites take on the nation of Israel here um, and here's where we're going to pick it up then. Background information at this point here to lead us up to talking about God and his staff. But in, a, in Exodus 17, in your outline there, I want to read to you the account now. Uh, Exodus 17, starting at verse 8, and it says this. The Amalekites, and we've talked about them, they came out and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, his military leader at this point, he says, Choose some of your men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God, my staff, the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and her, some of his buddies, went to the top of the hill. And as long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, you just start to see here, you think, man, how big of a deal is it to hold a staff up? Try doing this for minutes and minutes and minutes and, and hours. Picture yourself being 80 years old. I almost was going to give the staff to my dad who's in his mid to early 80s there and hold this up for the entire time I talk, dad, and let me know how it goes. Starting to get fatigued already, aren't you? Oh, I'm just going to take a little break. Oh, my gosh, we're losing. Get it up again, you know, changing hands, doing whatever. And finally, well, that's where we find ourselves. It says that Moses and uh, Aaron and her, as he got tired, they took a stone so they could sit down. And, and he sat on it. And then Aaron and her, they held his hands up, one on each side, just to hold it up. Because we see that we're winning only when God is over us, when God is there and victory happens. They held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other so that his hands remain steady till sunset. All day long they battle, the staff in the air. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. <laughs> Yay, another victory. And then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it, the leader, because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. So Moses built an altar and called it, he called it, the Lord is my banner. 
And he said, because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, speaking of the Amalekites, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. You see, this passage is where we see this name uh, proclaimed, this newly proclaimed name of God, Jehovah Nissi, the Lord is my banner. The Lord is my banner. Moses has seen this happen. He's seen God transform his lowly staff into something amazing and, and says, at this point, when this was lifted high, God is my banner. Now, we spent the last 10 weeks here, so, so many weeks, 10, 11 weeks here at Twin Cities, looking at the various names of God revealed in the Bible, each one revealing a different aspect of God's personality, his character, of, of his power, of his nature, of who he is. It's helped us understand him better. And here we see a name, Jehovah Nisi, that says, the Lord is my banner. And it proclaims God's total protection, his leadership, and deliverance of his people. It's victory, total victory. So we have to ask, what's the significance of God is my banner? God is my banner. What does that really mean? And so I'm going to put that down for a minute here. And because, first of all, it's a symbol of God's presence and God's power. So the significance is that it's a symbol of God's presence and his power, both that God is here and God is powerful. Now, a symbol can be a powerful thing. It can give us courage and it can give us hope. It can remind us what the big picture truth is beyond the immediate situation, right? When the immediate situation looks horrible, we can step back and really see that there's a hope beyond that. A powerful symbol can give motivation to those who believe in it and stand under it. Now, for example, we can take a look at the American flag. It's been a powerful symbol for patriotic, patriotic Amer Americans over the decades, over the centuries, really. And, uh, and since it's July 5th today, I want us to watch a movie clip where we see the symbol of the American flag work to give these frightened and desperate soldiers the courage and resolve they need to continue the fight. Let's watch this video. Wait! No retreat! fireworks right from retreat and certain defeat the simple statement of we can do this because we are who we are and the flag is that symbol for them it's a powerful powerful symbol that makes a huge difference now when we move back now to look at Moses's situation um, it's important to note that the staff itself the staff it isn't the power itself in and of itself it's not even it's not even the banner the lord is my banner oh you mean this no this isn't even the banner it, because it's a physical representation of the banner but but jehovah nisi means the lord god is my banner 
It's not that God has a banner and I'll take his banner to be my banner and wave God's flag. Do you understand? It's not God's banner. It's God himself. The Lord is my banner. It's his identity, his presence, and and his power. But the symbol, the symbol of God's presence and power, the banner, the Lord, it's seen as the staff of Moses. I'm sorry, it's the staff of God, right? The people have seen it work miracles. They've seen it in Egypt. They've seen it part the Red Sea. They, they saw it draw massive amounts of water from a rock in the desert. And it gives the people a tangible thing to see to remind them of the presence and the power of God. And, and they take courage and assurance in that. The symbol, the symbol lifts them up. Now, there are verses in the Bible that speaks to this assurance for God's people. So they speak to the presence and power of God in the face of a seemingly overwhelming army, an overwhelming enemy. And I want to read one of those verses, but, but before I do, I want to bring it to today to you to hear these words as not just delivered historically to the Israelites, but to you today, wherever you're at, in this room or at home, um, online. If you're in God's family... If you are a follower of Jesus, these words are for you no matter what battles in life that you're facing. I want to read to you from Deuteronomy 20, verse 1. God's speaking, or we're speaking about the Lord. It says, when you go to war against your enemies and you see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours. By the way, when this happens, not if. When this happens... Do not be afraid of them because the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, he will be with you. He will be with you. That's God's promise. He is the banner that flies over our head. He says, don't be afraid. God says, I will be with you. Well, the second point of significance of God is my banner. We said it's a symbol of God's presence and his power. But secondly, it's the actual power when... And here's what's key, when I submit and I lift him up. Sure, it's a wonderful symbol. God is a symbol, but he's actual power when I submit and lift him up. And by that, I mean it's not just a symbol of God's presence and power, as, as wonderful as that is. It's, it's more than that. It is his presence and power. When we allow him to work by submitting to him, sometimes a symbol can be a great thing. You know, here's a great symbol, but the truth is, If the power isn't there to back it up or if the power is a long ways off, it it doesn't mean a whole lot, right? The power's got to be there immediately available. So the staff, it was a physical representation of God, but but by itself, it was just a symbolic piece of wood. There was nothing, nothing remarkable about it. Lifting up the staff, it wasn't lifting up a magic wand. It wasn't like, okay, here comes a magic wand, wave it in the air, chant a certain thing, and then the magic will exude and make all forces, both physical and spiritual, you know, respond to it. It wasn't that. Uh, it was the act. Here's the deal. It wasn't the staff nearly as much. It was the act of lifting the staff up and putting it at, its, at its, it at its rightful place in the heavens over all. The act of lifting it up, that the Israelites could see it, and even the Amalekites could see that God was the one in control. God is on top. He's the one who's in charge. Does, does that make sense? I, I, I kind of, as I put this together, I thought, yes, it's a symbol of presence and power, but it's more than a symbol. It's the actual power, but the power isn't here. The power is the banner, but the, the banner is the Lord, and the power is in putting him up. I believe that's why God had Moses use the staff. 
sometimes he used just words, but by raising the staff over the Red Sea, by striking the rock with the staff, by lifting it up, it's saying, it's the Lord who's doing this. It's the Lord who's making it happen. God's power is there, willing and able, and it's totally available. But Moses had to lift him up. Look up to him as the answer, the power. And then God moved. You know, lifting the staff, it was lifting the banner. Lifting, in a sense, God himself into a position of complete authority. And God responded. The Israelites responded. You have to think as Moses is up on the hill with Aaron and her, and they're looking down that the Israelites are aware that Moses is up there. Joshua has told them, we're going to fight. You guys aren't warriors, but we're going to fight. And, and just whenever you need to, look up on the hill. Look up on the hill, and you're going to see Moses here, and you're going to see the staff of God. You're going to see the Lord himself saying, I got this. You got this. You got this. And it moves, and God moves, and it becomes a powerful saying. The same staff that parted the Red Sea that did all these things, it proves that God is a God over all other gods as he's lifted up as a showpiece to the nations. I imagine the Amalekites could see it too. And it maybe struck a little fear into their hearts. Well, that's the historical Jehovah Nisi and, and what that meant for the Israelites those thousands of years ago. But I want to move, I want to fast forward to today to really see why do we need Jehovah Nisi today? Where does he show up today and why is this important? Well, first of all, it's because we are in a series of battles today and every day. We need Jehovah Nisi today. The Lord is our banner. God is our banner because we are in a series of battles today and every day. Now, it's not probably against the physical Amalekites, and it might not be against physical swords and bows and arrows and all that, but our warfare is there. The spiritual warfare is very real, and it goes on around us continually, not just kind of far away in foreign lands at another time and another place, but in our own lives. And it affects us more than we know. It affects us greatly. The Bible is clear about these spiritual battles that are taking place and that we need, that we need to be on guard. See, the devil and his demonic forces, they're after us. They're trying to bring us down, and it's constant, and we need to know this. Because the truth is, although we maybe don't have physical Amalekites in our lives, we do have Amalekites, Amalekites in our lives, don't we? People around us, things around us, things that are trying to pull us down to discourage us and make us want to give up. So what's an Amalekite? It's anything in our lives that tries to block us from doing what God wants us to do. God says, I want you to do this. I want you to be this. I want you to go there. I want you to be this way. I want you in anything that gets in the way of that, that says, mm, 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 mm. it's Amalekites. Those are the Amalekites in our lives, and it's external things like our, our increasing classes with culture that go on. It's, it's with increased persecution as followers of Jesus that we face. It's financial hardships. It's relational stress. It's the pressure to make ourselves overly busy so that we can't get to what's important and so that in our busyness, our values erode. But the Amalekite attacks are, are also internal things like our own fears about the world around us that come from inside. It's insecurity about our own value and our own worth. It's our anger that gets the best of us so we, so we don't live with, the, and live with and express the grace and peace and love that God gives us. It's our envy. It's our worry. It's our pride. All the things that get in the way of God having his way in us. And that's, that's our daily battle. Do you see that? Do you see that in your own life? And I'd ask you, so what, what are the Amalekites in your life today 
What are the Amalekite armies that you face that are after you? What battles do you face and where do you need to allow Jehovah Nissi to step in? Because he is there, but he's waiting for us to lift him up and say it's about him and not about me. Well, in response to these battles today, (laughs) a couple of things. First of all, we need to rally under the banner. We need to rally under the banner. We don't just need to work harder ourselves, you know, and just read the Bible more and just be stronger and toughen up. We need to actually rally under the banner. You know, since there's such a huge battle going on constantly, we need to get under the protection and guidance of Jehovah Nissi. He is our banner. He's indestructible. He's a perfect God with all the wisdom and love that he needs to see us through. So so get under the banner, right? Get under the wings. Now, we see in the story of Moses some principles that will help us rally under the banner. First of all, to rally under the banner, to really make that happen, first principle is that we need each other. We need each other. And this is right there. We see this. I talked about it in the story, but we see this with Moses. He got tired trying to hold up that staff hour after hour, right? It just got fatiguing. And, and any time he'd lower his hands, and go, I'm just going to take a break, get me a drink of water. And he'd look down and he'd start to see the army losing. And let me be blunt. That means probably men dying, men being killed because I didn't hold this up, because I didn't continue to honor the Lord through this. So this is a big deal. This is a big deal. And so he needed other people, Aaron and Hur. He needed the rock. He needed help to accomplish God's call for him. And folks, that's the same for us today. We need that too because, well, we need other people because we get tired. We get weak. We let our guards down, sometimes without even knowing it. You know, as strong as we want to be, especially as guys, you know, as men, I can do it, you know, to do it on our own. We need the support of others. God isn't calling us into battle by ourselves. It's not a solo battle. It's a group thing. Don't be too proud to receive the support and that help. I know that's been hard for me over the years, but I can look back at time and time again when I have sometimes humbled myself and actually asked and received help and support from someone else. And God has worked a victory that um, I haven't allowed him to do by myself. So we need each other to rally under the banner. Secondly, we need to enter the battle. We actually need to enter the battle. And this is an important thing here. It's kind of obvious, but I think we miss it too. With the battle with the Amalekites, we see Moses go up on the mountain. He goes up with Aaron and her, and they trek their way up to the top, and Moses does his thing, and he holds it and sits down, whatever, and this is going on. Joshua and the army, they go down and drink lemonade and, and play horseshoes while they wait for God to win. Oh, wait, that's not what it says. What does it say? We see Joshua and the army, they go down and they fight in the valley. In fact, they mentioned several times. In fact, right at the end of the account, it says Joshua and his army, they won the fight with the sword, not with the lemonade and horseshoes. They didn't just sit around. Moses stood on the mountain and raised his staff. Joshua and the army had to do their part in order to win. They had to do their part. Look to the banner for encouragement and strength, yes, and allow God to do his work, but, but we have to enter the battle ourselves and, and do our part. We can't shift our responsibilities to God. We can't just say, God, you take care of it. I'm not going to do anything. Now, we also can't try to shift God's responsibility to ourselves, try to be God ourselves. God, I got this. But it goes both ways. Moses raised the staff, the banner, 
gave tribute to God in the presence and the power of God, and Joshua fought. For us, the truth is we need to be ready to dive into the mess to get, oh, I know it doesn't feel good for some of you, need to get dirty. Dive into the mess and get dirty to do our part, not just pray from a distance and be passive, aloof, and just kind of hope things work out well. I'm just going to be over here, God, while you do your thing. God says, yeah, but come join me. I want with you to win this battle. God in his proper place above all. We serving him as he calls us to. Well, third way to rally under the banner, we're doing it together. And, uh, and we need to do our part. And third, we trust God for the inevitable and ultimate victory. We trust God for the inevitable and ultimate victory. You see, here's the deal with this. Um, we're in the middle of all these battles that go around, go, go around us and in and, and, and all aspects of things. But the ultimate outcome has already been determined. These battle raged and they can put us in a bad spot in our heads and our hearts, but we don't need to fear and we don't need to worry because God is victorious every time. God is victorious every time and he extends that victory to us if we're followers of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 2, 14a says, but thanks be to God. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Oh, I can be thankful for that. He sometimes leads us in a truce. No, no. He always leads us. He always leads us in triumph in Christ Jesus. That's where it is. And, and I hope you got that. God is always going to lead us to triumph in Christ Jesus. And it gives us peace knowing that even as we fight, remember, we're supposed to be in the battle. That's one of the parts that happen. You've got to be in it. But even as we battle, we already know the outcome. We know that God is going to lead us to ultimate victory every time. One huge key here for us is that the victory we experience, it's in Jesus. And I want to show you how Jesus is our banner because we look at this Old Testament story with Moses and, and the Hebrews and, and it's before Jesus came and, and there's so much symbolism there of what is realized in Jesus. You see, after this time, uh, and it's an account in Numbers, there was a time when the Israelites were still wandering in the wilderness. They're up and down with obedience and disobedience. And uh, they're complaining and rebelling against God yet again because things are tough. And they're rebelling. And, and long story short, God sends, God gets upset and he sends some deadly snakes among the people. And they realize pretty quickly that this is God's judgment against their rebellion. And they don't say, God, not fair. They went, yep, we blew it. And they go to Moses and say, get us out of this. We blew it. We're, we're coming back to the Lord. The people cry out for mercy. And so God instructs Moses to make a brass serpent and to put it on a pole, I don't necessarily say the staff, but to put it on a pole and to hold it up in the middle of the camp, once again lifted high. And those who looked up at the serpent that had been bitten by a snake, they were healed. Victory was given to them. Healing was there. It was as simple as that. See, God wanted them to see that the cure for their problem, it came um, not by them jumping through a bunch of hoops to somehow earn God's healing. People, you've disobeyed, so now you've got to do this, 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 this. You've got to work hard. You've got to prove your heart. You've got to do this, this, this. No. You've got to look up. You've got to stop. Seize striving. Be still and know that I am God. Look to me for your deliverance. Look to me for your victory. Look to me for your healing. It's as simple as that. Putting, put total faith in him for forgiveness and healing. Now, hundreds of years later, hundreds of years later, God lifted up his son, Jesus, as our ultimate banner 
our hope and our salvation. Oh, it's such a huge parallel. It's such a wonderful analogy. Jesus, not as a serpent on a pole, but God in the form of man who lived a perfect life and then was lifted up on another piece of wood on a cross. And he was lifted up for people to see. And that day, many of them for scorn and for them to make fun of him. But the truth is he was lifted up to offer forgiveness and healing. Jesus himself, before he was crucified, actually spoke in John chapter 3, and he said, and, and he's referring back to the story I just told, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, and the, the Hebrews that he's speaking to would immediately know what he's talking about. Oh, yeah, the serpent that went up, that healed and delivered everyone and provided forgiveness. He said, as Moses did that, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Actually, the next verse after that is one that most of us know. It's held up at football games if and when they ever get started. John 3, 16. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world, the whole world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him, lifted up, on the cross, will not perish, but have everlasting eternal life. That's what uh, is offered to each one of us today. And when you're in Jesus, when you've received that forgiveness, the healing, the deliverance, and the victory of Jesus, then you walk in the victory we've talked about today. Then you walk in that victory. Jesus offers each one of us eternal life, an entirely new life, forgiven, free, with new purpose and new confidence, access to his love and his grace, his power and his presence. You see, God, in the form of Jesus, he is our Jehovah Nisi, if you will simply look to him for total and eternal victory, that complete victory of receiving Jesus into your heart and into your life, and then that victory of having him be over us to help us fight the battles we face every single day. Has a coronavirus brought some battles into your life? You feeling a little bit under, under the gun? Jehovah Nisi and Jesus is over all of that. Wants to give you victory over every little thing, every big thing. Would you pray with me? Father God, we're grateful for your love. And we're grateful that you are our Jehovah Nisi, Lord. You are a deliverer, that you are the one who protects and leads and guides us, Lord. And that you provide deliverance and victory every time, Lord. And I confess, Lord, that sometimes I get worried and I start feeling like I have to solve the problems myself and I have to work harder and I start to doubt how this is going to come out, Lord. And I just confess that because you assure me, you assure each one of us that as we have you inside of us, you lead to victory every time and we can rely on that and for if there's anybody there online or in this room that hasn't yet given their life to Jesus I invite you to do that now you do that simply by putting your faith and trust in him by lifting him up by believing that Jesus did indeed die on the cross for you Jesus was God God himself in the form of man who came and lived a perfect life and then died for each one of us to be lifted up on that cross to provide that deliverance and that healing for us. If you believe that and you ask him to forgive you right where you are and ask him to lead your life, he will make you new. 
and give you a new life and give you eternal life. He wants to be your Jehovah Nisi as you submit to him and as you lift him up and as you receive him. Lord, we trust in your victory today in Jesus' name. Amen.